Hello, this sermon audio is a ministry of the Town Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. If you would like to learn more about us, how to connect, or how to support us, go to our website, thetownchurch.org. While listening to the Bible preached is a healthy part of our spiritual formation, it is not the whole picture. So if you aren't a part of a local church, we encourage you to prayerfully commit to a local body of believers where you live. We're glad you can join us, and we hope God uses the following sermon to reveal more of His glory to you. Hey church, good morning. I'm glad you're here. We're going to continue to worship. And this week, we're going to start shifting gears a little bit. Oh, I'm Eric, by the way. I don't, think I, I don't often introduce myself up here. I'm Eric. I'm one of the elders. I'm also on staff, so it's nice, it's nice, nice to meet you, Caleb. Um, so we're going to start shifting gears today. Usually, we as a church, our sermon series, we go back and forth between Old Testament and New Testament books. But I looked, and it's been about two years since we've been in the Old Testament. And so next week, we're going to start the book of Joshua. We're going to go right through the book of Joshua. It's going to be, I think, 18 weeks or so. It's going to be a really good series. But in order to get ready for that, I want us to help get us caught up a little bit up to speed on the story of Israel. So we're ready to hit it head on next week. All right, so Chronicles of Narnia, seven books of them. Um, yep, there they are. It, it, probably a lot of you have read them. I probably, at least some of us have read them. But what would happen if you like, just jumped into book number four? You could still read it. They're all standalone books. You still read it. But you lose some of the storyline, don't you? You lose some of the depth of the characters. Like this, this lion comes out of nowhere in there. And all the way through, you, you lose some of that. Or, or maybe this is better for you. Uh, Avengers. There's, I don't know, 40 movies or something, Avenger movies out there. Like, what if you started watching movie number 34? And you didn't catch the first 33. I could use some of that character development, the big storylines, right? Well, this is what I want to try to hopefully help us with this morning as we get ready for Joshua. We don't just jump right in. And I want to see some of the storyline before that. All right. The thing that happens right before the book of Joshua opens is monumental to the life of Israel. It's a, it's a, it's a chapter that's closing, a huge chapter that's closing. A brand new is about to begin. It's, it's one of those markers in life where you start to say, you remember back when before and what happened after? Like life forever changes after. And this is what happens for Israel right before Joshua opens. If, for us in America, it's kind of like 9-11 a little bit. Like life forever changed after that. Or, or maybe COVID. We'll probably be saying at some point, remember before COVID, X, Y, and Z, and what happened after? Or for individuals, there's major markers in life. Maybe it's a health crisis. That's a major marker in life. Or a marriage, or a move, or a new job, or birth of a child. Even for us, for our corporate life as a church, we've had many markers, many big chapters close and new ones start, haven't we? So things that we say, hey, remember back when, before, or when? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to date myself a little bit. Does anybody here remember when we used to meet at 4 p.m. on Sunday afternoons? Vincent Kirsten, the black family. Their dad. Anybody else? 4 p.m.? Yeah, that was about 10 years ago. So how about this one? Do you remember when we used to do paper bulletins? Yeah, a couple years ago. Okay, a few of those. Some of these are more important than others. Yep, a few of those. Anybody remember? This one's really important. Um, when Vince's hair was shaved? Kirsten, the black family. Yep, Josh, a few others. Will. Or when it was short or when it was a mullet? Anybody remember the week that it was a mullet? All right, now it's dreads. Okay. Or how about this one in life of a church? The addition or the change of key leaders, whether they're paid staff or they're workers or the, influ- or the areas that they influence. These are big changes, that closes of old chapters, beginning of new ones. And it's this last one, a key change in leadership that Israel is facing right before the book of Joshua opens up. 
It's this gigantic before and after moment in the life of Israel. We're about to read about the death of Moses. But please notice this as we read this. Under God's sovereignty, and because he is good, milestones like we experience together and the story we're about to read about Moses' death is less about the details and the facts of Moses' death and much more about how God is revealing himself to us through it. Does that make sense? We can't miss this. This is the point. This is God revealing himself to us. In other words, the details and the specifics in the story we're about to read exist for a greater purpose than simply giving us historical fact. They exist to show us more of God's character. This is what we're here for, isn't it? We want to see more of God for who he is. They reveal to us a bigger picture of who God is. So think about that in the corporate life of us as a church with moving to this building. That's a big one, wasn't it? Eight months ago. affected everything. If I simply share the details of that milestone, the date we close on the building, the negotiations, all the facts, all the people involved, we miss the bigger picture of what God is doing and through it, aren't we? So consider, consider, I'm going to share a couple of the details how this happened. Consider these and ask the question, what's God showing us about himself? A church our size should never have been able to purchase this building in the first place. God brought someone, it just leaked from the ceiling. Oh, you already knew that. There's a paper towel there. Okay. That was really bizarre. Like something was, uh, okay. Um. <laughs> our ceiling. Wait, God still gave us this building though. It was beautiful. <laughs> Uh, but but th- th- think about some of the things that made this happen. There's a preschool that already, that already is here and able to lease space from us to help make it happen. Certain connections in the finance world help make it happen. We have some really, really generous givers here that God stirred up their hearts to give. That helped make it happen. And many, many people, there's a synergy of so many people around gospel-oriented interests and skills and passions all made it happen. So what does all of that tell us about God? How is God revealing himself to us through all of it? Well, probably lots of things, but not the least of which is his grace to us. God lavished this on us, and we don't deserve it. You see, our move to this building wasn't mainly, we closed on May 17, 2021, at Heritage Title Company at noon, but rather, God showed his grace to us. So, all of that to say, here's our question for this morning we're going to ask of this text. How does God reveal himself to us in the death of Moses? Now I need to get us caught up to speed. To set this up, consider God's incredible intent of revealing himself to us through the life of Moses. Moses picks up beginning of the book of Exodus. Israel is enslaved in Egypt. And God calls Moses, says, Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh. I want you to confront him. I'm going to work through you. There's all kinds of crazy things I'm going to do in front of Pharaoh. And I'm going to use you to take my people out of Egypt and lead them toward the promised land. But notice this. This isn't just about God leading his people to a promised land. It's primarily God revealing himself to all involved. Remember what happens in Egypt? God shows his incredible power to Pharaoh and to the people there. And God makes this unmistakable claim to be the only true God. So here, here's a map of the Exodus. This blue dotted line is where they may have gone. Nobody knows for sure. Egypt in the upper left-hand corner. Promised land, upper right-hand corner. God starts taking them out of Egypt and leads them through this wilderness, the Sinai Peninsula. 
Now, out there, God gives his people the law. If nothing else, this is what the law does. It reveals God to his people. They're to be different than every other nation. The law spells that out. So other nations, they look on the people of Israel. They're different. They get an idea of who the God of Israel is and what he is like. God is revealing himself to Israel and others by taking them through the wilderness and giving them the law. So Moses leads them through, and they come up all the way to the edge of the promised land. Remember the story? They send, a couple, they send spies out in the promised land, and it looks like it's going to be too hard to go and conquer it. So they come back, all except for two, and say, this is going to be really, really hard. And so the people don't believe God to be who he is. They say, we can't do it. And so God takes them back out into the wilderness. That's that little loop up there, back out into the wilderness. They're out in the wilderness this time, and they enter, they enter lots of lands. They don't have food. They don't have water. So God catches. God continues to reveal himself to the people as, as a person who can provide for them, as their God who cares for them. He feeds them. He gives them water to drink. They're in this wilderness, and God continues to show himself to them. He, they set up a sacrificial system so he can be in relationship with them. He's shaping a unique people in the knowledge and love of the one true God. All the while, they're out in the wilderness. And God, through Moses, brings the people back to the promised land. But this time, it's a brand new generation. The old generation, except for a couple of exceptions, had died in the wilderness. Now they're right back. It's upper right-hand corner, right on the edge of the promised land. And this is where our story this morning takes place, in the plains of Moab, east of the Dead Sea. You can't really see the Dead Sea, but there's a little Dead Sea right upper right-hand corner up there. At this point now, Moses is an old man. He has been in the wilderness for a long time, 40 years. He's seen a generation die. He's seen his brother and his sister die in the wilderness. He's 120 years old. He's not doing too bad for 120. And it's here where Moses gives his last couple of addresses to the people of Israel. He reminds Israel who God is. He's faithful, his power, his holiness. And he begs for the people to obey God with all their hearts. And then Moses ascends Mount Nebo. And this is where our story this morning takes place. So have your Bibles. Open up to Deuteronomy chapter 34. It's the chapter right before Joshua opens. It's the fifth book of the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 34. If you don't have a Bible, then bring one. There's a table full of Bibles in the back. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you just to take one and have it. It's yours. Just read it, please. Deuteronomy chapter 34. We're actually going to start in verse 10 of Deuteronomy 34. And we're going to read the last couple of verses of, the, of this book and of this chapter are basically Moses' epitaph. An epitaph are those things we, we say to sum up somebody's life after they passed away, say what you would engrave on a tombstone. Now, this is Moses' epitaph, chapter 34, starting in verse 10. And I want to start here, because I think this sums up what we just walked through, that God is revealing himself through the life of Moses, and that is what is primary. This is going to shape how we read chapter 34. So, Deuteronomy chapter 34, let's read verses 10 through 12. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh, and to all his servants, and to all his land. And for the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. So if that is Moses' epitaph, what is so special about Moses? Well, he certainly has, he certainly has some intimacy with God, didn't he? This figurative face-to-face. But then notice what else. 
God used him to reveal his power and his character to both a pagan nation, Egypt, and also to his own people, to Israel. In other words, God used the life of Moses to reveal himself to the people. This is the point of Moses' life and the larger biblical story. It's it's central what makes Moses such an important biblical figure. Now take that point about Moses' life, and now let's apply it to his death. And we're going to start with verses 1 through 4. I think in total here in this chapter, we're going to see at least four ways that God shows himself to us through the death of Moses. Let's start verses 1 through 4 of chapter 34. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negev and the plain, that is, the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zoar. And the Lord said to him, This is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So here's a little bit of a zoomed-in map of the promised land. Dead Sea, bottom, bottom center-ish or so. Mount Pisgah is right, kind of that darker circle is, is, is right in there. This is a great vantage point. So you can see, actually, on the top of this mountain, you can see quite a bit of the promised land. So God calls him up there, and he just starts walking through counterclockwise, kind of where those red arrows go. Here is this promised land that I said I would give to the people of Israel. Now here we are, right on the border of it. I'm allowing you to see it. Can you imagine how emotional this must have been for Moses? He just spent the majority of his life leading a stubborn people through the wilderness to get here. And now here he is. He gets to see it. The generations that have passed on, his brother and his sisters have passed on, all the trials he's gone through, and here he is actually looking at it. This is the destination for the people of Israel. But most importantly, this is the fulfillment of God's promise that he made to the nation of Israel. The fulfillment of what God swore many generations earlier to Abraham is now here at the, Moses is now at the, at, the, at the edge of it, through the generations, Abraham to Moses. So friends, I want to hear you. Does God keep his promises? Yes, thank you, Vince, for that refrain. We see it over and over again, don't we? Through scripture, God keeps his promises. He's a promise keeper. This is essential to what make God who he is. This is the first thing I want to see, us see revealed here. God is keeping his promises. We're reading about it. Even if it takes generations for God to fulfill his promise like it did from Abraham all the way to Moses. But there's another layer here. There's another promise being kept that further reveals God to us. And to see this, I need to share with you one more story that's taken place, and we read about it in Numbers chapter 20. That second time when God takes Israel back through the wilderness, they go through a place that's really desolate. There's no water at all. And so the people, they come to Moses and Aaron, and they say, we don't have any water. Why did you take us out of Egypt just so you can kill us by thirst here? This sounds familiar. They've done this a few times, haven't they? And so Moses and Aaron, they go to God. They fall on their face before him. God's glory shines, and God says, get up, gather all the people so they all can see you. I want you to speak to a rock they can all see. I'm going to give them water out of that rock. So Moses gets up. He gathers all the people, 
and he has a big stick in his hand, his staff, and apparently out of frustration with the people, instead of speaking to the rock, he strikes it twice, and water gushes out. Everybody's able to drink. But God is very upset with Moses. Why is God so upset? Here's Numbers chapter 20, verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. Moses lived out of a sort of unbelief in front of all the people that God charged him to lead to the promised land. And so God punishes his sin for not treating him for who he really is as completely holy as to other as set apart. And the punishment for Moses' sin is really severe, isn't it? Moses would not be allowed to enter the very land he spent so much time and energy and emotion leading this people to. Moses could not enter the promised land. This has to be crushing for Moses. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 3, we read that Moses pleads with God to let him in anyway. Hopefully you can read this. It's not too small. I want to read this. This is Moses speaking. Actually, he's writing. And I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, you have only begun <laughs> to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Here's the plea. Please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that good hill country in Lebanon. For the Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. Go up to the top of Pisgah and lift up your eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward and look at it with your eyes, for you shall not go over this Jordan. All right, take a step back. What then is happening in chapter 34 of Deuteronomy? God is keeping his promises, isn't he? He's keeping his promise to Moses that he can see the land. He's also keeping his promise that Moses will not be able to enter the land. So what do these two kept promises reveal about God? They show us that the one true God is both gracious and holy. Gracious because God gave Moses he said, didn't, something he didn't deserve to be able to see the land. And holy because God still has consequences he's allowing to go forth upon Moses' sin Sin didn't go unpunished. Think about this. The God that we worship right now here this morning is the same God who kept these two promises to Moses. He's both fully and simultaneously gracious and holy. God isn't part gracious or part holy. He isn't sometimes holy, sometimes gracious. These things aren't external to God that he just puts on at times. But rather, God is gracious. God is holy. The concepts of gracious and of grace and holiness have no grounding outside of God himself. We have no concept for them outside of God. God's the very definition of what it means to be gracious, what it means to be holy. See, Moses experienced it. These kept promises exhibit it. God's gracious and God is holy. So friends, let these truths sink in. Here's the point. Let them lead you to adore our God. Because God is gracious, you and I have been given so much that we don't earn, 
we don't deserve, that God gives us. So many things that we enjoy, all the good things that we have, God has graciously given us, not according to anything that we've done, but according to his grace. How about the sunshine this past week? Who earned that, right? God just graciously gives that to us. Or a good night's sleep, the ability to work, or the ability to play, warmth in the cold, family, or as I mentioned earlier, the grace to be able to gather here together as a family. This is God's grace to us. Worshiping God with others and hearing the truth of God's word proclaimed is a grace that God has given you right now. It's a gift. You never earned it, but God's giving it. We don't enjoy these good gifts because we're good people, because we've done enough good things. This isn't karma. And sometimes we start to feel that. I don't know if I do some good things and hopefully those will just come back to me. This isn't karma. This is God's grace. And besides, even the desire and the ability for you to do anything good is given to you by God's grace. Even all the good works are the evidence of our faith that James says must be present. To do anything pleasing to God is given to God, given to us by God himself. God's a source of all good things. In the words of James, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Now, notice this. I think this is fascinating with Moses. Even Moses after he disobeys God, when he strikes that rock and he comes and pleads with God to let him enter the land, I want you to notice what grounds he uses, the basis of his plea. He doesn't appeal to the countless years he's faithfully led Israel. He doesn't appeal to all the countless times he's interceded on Israel's behalf. He doesn't appeal to all the good things that he's done. He doesn't appeal even to the days and nights he went hungry and didn't drink because he was communing with God. Do you remember on what grounds, we just read it, remember what grounds Moses uses as the basis of his appeal? Here, it's the highlighted portion. Let me read this again. And I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven and earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Please, therefore, on the grounds of this, let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, the good hill country in Lebanon. Did you catch it? Moses grounds his plea upon what God has already done and what God is going to do. Our friends, we serve a gracious God who gives us good things ultimately rooted in his grace alone. We plea, the basis of our plea is rooted in his character. We see this first and foremost by the greatest gift of all, don't we? The gift of us being in relationship with a holy God. That God sends Jesus to, be, to take our place, the punishment that God has upon sin, he sends Jesus to be in our place. Paul in Ephesians 2, he writes that while we were dead in our sin, God chose to graciously make us alive together with him. Think about this. God made the dead alive. Our required response to the gospel call, our required response to God calling us to become alive was given to us by God's grace. You see, all, all good things, our faith included, originates in the character of God and his grace. Even for all the amazing things God did and through Moses over generations, Moses didn't point back and take credit. Surely you and I can't do that either. We can't take credit for the good things God graciously gives us. And here's the point. 
This should lead us to give God thanks. Thanks to a God whose character is like this. So God's gracious. He's also holy. God's set apart. He's not common. He's not ordinary. He's not profane. All of our normal life, it's, it's all been affected by the fall, hasn't it? It's all characterized by sin, but, but God cannot have anything to do with sin. He's set apart. He's holy. God only has wrath for sin. So because God is holy, sin has consequences. Moses couldn't enter the promised land. Sin is weighty. It's everything contrary to God's desires. It's ugly. It's deformed. And it deforms those of us who practice it. In fact, in some cases, it literally rewires our brains. Think about the cases of addiction. Whether we're addicted to work or addicted to a substance or explicit images or on and on and on. Sin promises us so much, but it's hollow. Unlike God, sin doesn't keep its promises, does it? Whether it's promises for pleasure or it's promises for a quick fix, whatever problem that we're, that we're after, or it's a promises for some sort of personal fulfillment. My friends, I have begun to earnestly pray that God would show me and show all of us what sin actually is. To actually see it for what it is, as God sees it. This is a prayer I would love to join all of us in praying. God, would you show us sin for what it truly is? My concern for myself and for us is our tendency is to take sin too lightly or become just simply too comfortable with it. We live with it long enough, become comfortable with it. I don't want that anymore. It deforms us. It's ugly. Because the God we serve is completely holy, our growing love for this holy God should exhibit itself in our lives as our dislike for sin as well. We need each other to this end. We need God's grace. We need Jesus. We need the ongoing transformative work of the Holy Spirit to this end, don't we? So think about this. Think about this gracious and holy God revealed to us in light of the gospel. A God who only has wrath for sin graciously gave us Jesus to take the punishment that we deserve for our sin so we could have his perfect righteousness instead. That's the sort of God that we serve. And why did God do that? So a sinful people could be in relationship with a holy God. This is the gospel. And the categories for that, for his holiness and for his grace, are seen right here in Deuteronomy chapter 34 in the death of Moses. This is the consistency of God's character. He doesn't change. God's always gracious and holy. There's one more truth, though, about God that I want us to see here in Deuteronomy chapter 34. It's, it's, it's these next few verses, verses 5 through 9. So let's read these and look for at least one more. I'm sure there's all sorts in here, but there's one more that I want us to see. Deuteronomy chapter 34, verses 5 through 9. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed, his vigor unabated. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days when the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. So, true to God's word, Moses dies there. He never enters the promised land. 
And perhaps because of Moses' special relationship with God or maybe because God didn't want his body to become a relic or a fixation for the people of Israel, God buries him and nobody knows where the, where the grave is. We just know it's not in the promised land. And the people of Israel mourned for Moses 30 days. This is much longer than the customary seven days. Moses was a gigantic figure in the life of Israel. His death marks the end of an enormously important chapter and the beginning of a brand new one. I mean, think about this. All this generation of Israel only knows Moses as their leader, with only a couple of exceptions. They only know Moses as their leader. But now notice this. In verse 9, a brand new chapter starts. A chapter that God promised would begin. Back in Deuteronomy 3, this is where we have looked before. Right after God refuses Moses' plea to enter the promised land, but grants that he can see it, we read this. This is verse 28 of Deuteronomy 3. He's talking to, to Moses. But charge Joshua and encourage and strengthen him, for he shall go over the head of this people, and he shall put them in possession of the land that you shall see. God commands Moses to strengthen and encourage Joshua because God would use Joshua to continue this work that he began with Moses. Joshua will take the people in the promised land. This is exactly what we're seeing. It's actually starting to happen here in verse 9 of Deuteronomy 34. The torch has been passed. <laughs> the new promised chapter is indeed beginning just as God said it would. And God's going to continue to reveal himself in this new chapter. It's what we're going to start studying next week. And proper next week, read chapter 1 for next week. So, what does this passing of the torch to Joshua show us about our gracious and holy God? This is the point, remember? What does this show us about God? What about God is revealed in the fact that his promises are not confined to one leader? What is revealed by the fact, about God by the fact that his promises are not confined to one generation and cannot be thwarted by sin? Think about this. We see God still leading his people to the promised land even though the leader isn't Moses. We see God still leading his people to the promised land even though Israel sinned over and over and over again. Even though one generation died in the wilderness, even though Moses himself didn't perfectly obey God. What kind of God's revealed here? An absolutely transcendent God is on display. It's a God not confined to individuals or generations or sin or a particular nation. Our God is so much bigger than all of that. The control our sovereign God exercises transcends any other force. No force, no force in the galaxy has leverage on God. No other force can twist God's arm to doing anything he doesn't already please to do. Nothing can force God into plan B. Do you see? <laughs> our promise-keeping, gracious, holy God is absolutely transcendent. So he's trustworthy. We can fully trust God to keep his promises, to accomplish his perfect purposes, because his promises of perfect purposes issue from a transcendent God. The death of one of the greatest leaders the nation of Israel ever knew wasn't enough to thwart God's purposes. COVID isn't enough to thwart God's purposes. War in Europe is not enough to thwart God's purposes. The sin that you committed last night, this morning, even right now, is not enough to thwart God's purposes. The fears you're battling, the anxieties that keep you up at night are not enough to thwart God's purposes. Nothing 
is able to keep God from keeping his promise to accomplish his perfect purposes. So what does it mean to serve this God when we don't see how he's keeping his perfect purposes? When all we see is our problems. Perhaps those problems are screaming at you right now for your attention. I think at the very least, serving this sort of God, a promise-keeping, gracious, holy, and transcendent God, should encourage us to ask God how he might be revealing himself to us through our problems. We start to ask new questions, don't we? Instead of only asking for the quickest resolution possible, we also start to ask, what of God's character is he showing me? How is God revealing himself to me? In many of my own current problems, I'm trying to learn this. He's showing me that he's trustworthy. And so I'm praying that he'd help me to wait on him, not, not wait on him to shirk my responsibility to be part of a resolution or just to become passive, but to learn what does it mean to actually wait upon a promise-keeping, gracious, holy, and transcendent God to do what only God can do anyway. It's not easy for me. I want the fix now. This is sort of God we serve. And so we look for how God's revealing himself, the same God who revealed himself in the life and death of Moses. A God whose timetable is often different than ours, but a God who will still keep his promises. A God who is gracious, which we ultimately see in Jesus. And because of that, he's not going to deal with us according to our sin, praise God. A God who is holy, so he's not going to allow injustice to remain forever. A God who's transcendent, so he's larger than our problems and cannot be thwarted by them. These are the things about God that we see in this final chapter of Deuteronomy. The significant milestone of Moses' death isn't primarily about Moses' death, but about the God who's over all of it. We have a God who chooses to graciously reveal himself to us. Does that not blow your mind? Friends, your God keeps his promises, every last one. Your God is gracious. Your God is holy. Your God is transcendent. He's so much more powerful and bigger than anything you can possibly imagine. Church, this is your God. By God's grace, our response to this God is our growing affections for him. That's what we're praying for. God, would you grow our love for you as you show yourself more to us? Just like how the death of Moses isn't primarily about the death of Moses, but points to someone greater, points to God, so too is a life about Moses, not primarily about Moses, but points to someone greater. And Moses, he served this important function for the life of Israel. He was their mediator before God. He would speak to God on behalf of the people. He would speak to the people on behalf of God. He was in between. He was the mediator. And he was terribly imperfect, wasn't he? But God's gracious initiative to us, we have a perfect mediator in the person of Jesus. Paul, in his first letter to Timothy, he says, we have a mediator, that person is Jesus. And the author of Hebrews says, Jesus is the mediator for us of a brand new covenant. Moses mediated an old covenant full of a sacrificial system where animals had to be sacrificed in order for God's wrath upon their sin to be appeased so they could be in relationship with him. But Jesus, he ushered in a brand new covenant where Jesus himself 
was that once for all time sacrifice that we could be in relationship again with God and have God's wrath upon our sin appeased. Listen to this. Jesus did not fail where Moses failed. He's our perfect mediator in this new covenant. Jesus, God himself, lived the perfect life we never could, died the death that we deserve for our sin. He was dead for three days, but then he rose again. He forever broke the power of sin and death. And he's now seated at the right hand of God the Father, mediating for us this brand new covenant that we get to enjoy today. So if you trust Jesus to save you, if you're a believer, this new covenant's yours. So let me pray for us. God, I, man, I thank you, first of all, that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us. You didn't have to do that. Nothing forced you to do that. You could have been absolutely perfect with all of your goodness and your graciousness and your holiness, your transcendence, without ever revealing yourself to us. But out of grace, you decided to do it, and you've done it over and over again. You've I mean, the pinnacle is what you've kept for us in your word. So thank you that we get to read it and that your spirit moves to show us more of who you are. God, thank you for sending your son, Jesus. You are revealing who you are through Jesus. This is the pinnacle of the gospel, the pinnacle of you displaying your character to us and the person and work of Jesus. We thank you for that. I pray that as we read through Joshua, as we think about what we talked about today, that we would not be consumed with the facts and the details of what's happening, but we would see all of them, how they point us to who you are and that you're revealing yourself to us. Would, would you, by your grace, grow our love for you as a result? Would we not just obtain more knowledge about how Moses' death went down, but would we see who you are and our love for you grow as a result, God? I pray, Spirit, would you be at work doing that? We can't do that. So we're asking that you would move in that way. Thank you for what you accomplished on our behalf. In Jesus' name, amen.